0: That was great. Let's see if we can get... This morning, the elders have asked me to speak on a topic that uh, is sometimes seen as controversial. It's one that's sometimes avoided. It's one that is more and more seen as uh, sort of difficult to deal with, hard to answer, but... And honestly, I don't think it should be any of those things. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about anything that the Bible talks about. I'm aware that there are some who take different positions on the topic that we're going to talk about this morning, but I'm confident that if we study, can everybody see? Okay. How about now? Okay. I'm confident that if we take, uh, if if we look at the Bible, and take what it says, and if we study diligently, and carefully look, and reason properly from the scriptures, that people with good and honest hearts will have no problem coming to agreement on what the Bible says about this. Not only on this topic, but any topic that you can think of. If we study and apply ourselves, people who uh, know God's word and trust God and have good and honest hearts, they will come to agreement on matters that the Bible speaks about. This morning, what we're going to examine is the question, what does the Bible say about alcohol? Right off the bat, it doesn't take much study to learn that the Bible very plainly says that drunkenness is wrong. Well, my thing is backwards. We're going to have to roll with it, though. Uh, drunkenness is wrong. We will look to uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19 through 21. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. Here is uh, basically a list of um, all sorts of bad stuff that... that uh, that Paul lists here and in it is drunkenness and with drunkenness is things like murder and idolatry and all sorts of bad stuff so it's very clear how God thinks about being drunken okay that's easy enough and also first Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10 we learn that drunkards Not only is it wrong, is that drunkards cannot even inherit the kingdom of heaven. There's a number of other verses that we can look at, but they're very plain, they're very easy to see. We don't need to belabor that point. It's something that can keep us out of heaven. Pretty much everyone who reads the Bible and and studies it and and agrees that it's God's word and and all that sort of good stuff, pretty much everyone will agree very quickly that drunkenness is wrong. That's not the problem. The, The question then should be, what does the Bible say about a little bit of alcohol? Because that's, that's normally a question that's brought up amongst Christians. What does this Bible say about moderate drinking? Some people say that moderate drinking is okay, as long as you don't get drunk. You can drink a little bit, as long as you don't cross the line. The line is right here. As long as you don't cross the line and get drunk, you're fine. So a little bit of moderate drinking is okay, so that's what some people say. Other people, on the other hand, say that any amount of alcohol is wrong. How do we tell who's right? Well, the same way we tell uh, anything else. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. So what I've done is I've compiled a list of arguments first uh, against social drinking. We'll examine a number of arguments why we shouldn't uh, condone or do it ourselves social drinking. okay? And then what we're going to look at uh, afterwards are some arguments for social drinking. Okay? So we'll see how that works. First, what we're going to look at are some weak arguments. Why are we going to look at weak arguments? Because, uh, just like any other question, there's, there's weak arguments on both sides of the, the equation. Okay? And even if you're right, even if your conclusion is absolutely 100% correct, if you use a weak argument, it makes you lose credibility. It it makes your argument appear wrong. So we want to avoid doing that, and we're going to look at these just to point out uh, the fact that they're sort of weak, and at least regarding uh, this question, we probably shouldn't use them. The first one is the slippery slope argument. A lot of times people will say, well, we shouldn't drink because drinking could lead to taking other drugs and getting into all sorts of other bad things and health problems and all sorts of bad stuff. That's why we shouldn't drink. Well, this is a, a poor argument because... The, even though those things may be true and a lot of people who, who start drinking will get into other drugs and they'll start robbing people and, you know, bad stuff, slippery slope. It's weak because it doesn't appropriately address the question at hand, which is moderate drinking, drinking only a little bit. This, this argument approaches, uh, addresses heavy use, and it addresses use of other illicit drugs, which everybody would already agree is wrong. Okay. So, this argument only shows that the abuse of things is wrong. Just because something can be abused does not necessarily mean that it can't be used right. Most any good thing can be abused. Uh, take, for instance, uh, prayer. Prayer is a good thing. Everybody would say that prayer is a good thing. But, what if I pray, uh, after you guys leave here today, what if I pray that you get hit by a truck? That would, ab- that would be an abuse of prayer, right? Right? That wouldn't make all prayer wrong, though. That would make that prayer wrong, and we should say that prayer is wrong. So the slippery slope argument, just because something can possibly lead to something bad, doesn't mean that something, if it can be used right, is wrong. If that makes sense, great. If not, then uh, you can listen to the recording afterward and listen, hear it again. The next argument, negative social impact. Negative social impact. And this argument basically takes the form of a lot of statistics and, and that sort of stuff. Drunk driving and, and all the crime that is caused by, al- by alcohol and all the heartache and all these terrible things that alcohol creates. And while all these statistics and, and stories may be very compelling and very true, and a lot of times they are, Again, this, this argument is weak because it just doesn't address the issue at hand. This sort of sets up a straw man. This shows that extreme overindulgence in alcohol to be bad. And, and again, everybody would already agree to that. So there's no point in in making this argument when we're talking about the question about moderate drinking, or drinking only a little bit. But it should be noted that there there is a little bit to this argument that... Uh, one can never get drunk, if they don't start drinking to begin with, but again, it's still not much of a strong argument because of the points that we've made previously. So, these are two arguments, while well, good to know about, they're typically best left alone in regard to the question at hand. So let's look at some better arguments. These are roughly listed in order of their strength. So we'll start out with some that are maybe not as strong, but still very good. And then as we move along, we will find ones that are even more stronger. And this is my opinion. You can reorder them however you like. The first argument is one from influence. And for this, we will look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and verse, verses 42 through 47. But whoever causes one of these little ones to who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And then Jesus goes on from there. Can you imagine you doing anything that if you did that, it would have been better if you had a big, heavy, basically cinder block tied around your neck and then somebody threw you off a boat into the ocean. Jesus is saying that would be better for you than if you did this thing. And this thing is whatever would cause someone to stumble. So the principle here is influencing or contributing to someone else's sin is itself sin. It's easy enough to see. If it causes someone else to stumble or to sin, it is wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 10 through 13. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But... When you thus sin against the brethren, it would wound and wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Here Paul is saying, this is how important the the principle that Jesus introduced is. That's how important it is. I will never again do something that I'm even entitled to do. Paul is entitled to eat meat. But he says, I will even give that up if if it would cause someone to stumble so can you say to someone maybe who's a former alcoholic can you say well for me drinking is fine because you know i can i, I don't overindulge and so on and so on but for you drinking is wrong what if that person followed your example what if that person said i will follow so and so and do what they do How is that consistent? Can we say, follow me as I follow Christ to anyone? Follow me, you can do what I do, and you can make it to heaven. For that reason alone, you should think very carefully about those whom we have influence over. Even if there were no other arguments made, for a mature Christian, for someone who is mature in Christ, this should be more than enough to abstain completely from alcohol forever. But the good news is there are a number of other arguments I will look at. The second one is it supports sin. it supports sin. Second John chapter 1 there's an interesting principle uh, introduced here Second John chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Verse 11, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. There's a principle here that says when we support or encourage someone, we share in their deeds. So, for instance, if I support a denominational preacher, someone who I know teaches something that's wrong, if I support them by wishing them Godspeed or giving them money or inviting them to my house and supporting them that way, I'm directly helping them continue to teach their false doctrine. And so I have a hand in all the wrong things that they teach. I share in his evil deeds. That's the principle that's here. The parallel is purchasing alcohol supports an industry that thrives off of people's sin. Everyone will already agree that drunkenness is sinful. The alcohol industry directly and explicitly encourages this action, though. So you have to ask yourself, by showing support for the alcohol industry, do you become a partaker in their evil deeds? If not, why not? The next argument, this this one is a favorite of many. From this one stems from Proverbs chapter twenty-three and verse thirty-one. Do not look and these some of these are hard to come up with the names for. But Proverbs chapter twenty-three. Let's just look at it. Proverbs chapter twenty-three and verse thirty-one. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Here God plainly reveals his feelings regarding intoxicating beverages. Here he specifies wine, but this would, by implication, deal with any other intoxicating substances that people might want to take. Not only does he not want us to drink them, he doesn't even want us to look at them, according to this verse. Such is the, the force of the wording in this passage. But some people will say that this passage only condemns drunkenness. This, this only says that you know, being drunk is wrong. But if we read the passage as well as the context carefully, we'll learn that this, that this doesn't support that conclusion, that that conclusion can't be right. The prohibition in Proverbs chapter 23 in verse 31 is not drunkenness. The prohibition is against even looking upon intoxicating drink. The surrounding context also bears out a prohibition in verse 35 against addiction drunkenness in verses 29 through 30 as well as other intoxicating substances a lot of times in in the ancient times they would not only take something that was intoxicating but they'd put other things in it to make it even more intoxicating so there's a prohibition of all of those things however to say that verse 31 does not prohibit looking on the wine is to rest the scriptures Verse 31 does prohibit looking upon wine. It's interesting that the ancients did not have a word for alcohol. The word that we use to describe alcohol didn't come along for years and years and years and years afterward, after these things were written. So the writer, in order for us, for the reader, us, to understand what the writer is talking about, they had to describe its effects. So whenever alcohol is described as you know causing people to be drunk and all the things that we read in the context here, it's only there so that we understand what kind of thing the writer is talking about. All right? So... Uh some people object to this, though. They say, well, does this literally mean that it's sinful to even look at wine? What about like when we're going through the grocery store and we happen to look at it because it's in the aisle with the cereal and we like to get cereal, but sometimes we. Or what about if we're driving our cars and then we see a, bill, bill, a billboard or we're watching the Super Bowl and you know, the Super Bowl has all sorts of ads and this and that? So they, they use this this reasoning. They say, well, sometimes since we can inadvertently look at it, that means we can ignore the, the, the passage altogether. That's their reasoning, but this reasoning is flawed. that's, That's a big mistake to make because it's not the inadvertent look that is what is forbidden. Rather, it's the deliberate eyeing of an intoxicant for pleasure. The look indicates a longing or desire for it. Compare this to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28. It's not the look alone, it's the desire behind the look. Also compare this to the scripture reading that Mylon just read. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 17. Lot's wife learned that God means what he says when he commands not to look at something. The command here is obvious, to not even look at alcoholic beverages with desire. So the next few arguments stem from the original Greek, of the New Testament. And these are... In my opinion, the hardest to quibble about, and they have the widest scope of application. The next one is stems from the word that comes out of Ephesians chapter five and verse eighteen. So go ahead and turn there, Ephesians chapter five and verse eighteen. And this word appears in a number of other places, the word drunk. And do not be drunk with wine, Ephesians five eighteen, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Here Paul identifies drunkenness not as an end, he identifies drunkenness as a process. Did you get it when you read the verse? Well, no, because in English a lot of times translating leaves out certain certain bits of information that are important. In the Greek, the word drunk is a special kind of verb. It's an inceptive verb. They're also called incoetive verbs if you're into English and grammar and all of that, if you want to look it up. What is an inceptive verb, you might ask? Well, It's a verb that shows the process of beginning or becoming. And if that doesn't make sense, that's fine. Let's use an illustration. Uh, An inceptive verb that we would use today is the word thaw. Everybody knows what thaw means. Imagine that we had some chicken in the freezer. We have some chicken in the freezer. We have people coming over later. The chicken right now, it's fully frozen. It's not thawed at all. When does the chicken begin the process of thawing out? We take it out of the freezer. The moment we take it out of the freezer, it's easy easy to understand. When we take the chicken out of the freezer, it's still mostly frozen, but it has to some degree started the process of thawing out. The longer the chicken is out of the freezer, the further into the state of thaw it becomes. Get it? That's how an inceptive verb works. Inceptive verbs show the process of beginning or becoming. We don't have to wait until the chicken has been completely thawed out, it's totally room temperature, to say, oh, yeah, now it started thawing. That's not, that's not how we use the word. That's not how we understand it. Thawing begins after it's no longer completely frozen, no, after it's no longer in the freezer. So let's, let's make the connection then. Instead of chicken, and instead of the freezer, let's imagine a person who has not had any drinks. He's completely sober. Okay, The person is not drunk or intoxicated. When does that person begin the process of becoming drunk or the process of intoxication? When does that process begin? When a toxin is ingested, that person begins the process of intoxication. That's the meaning of the word. It's a simple meaning. Ingest a toxin, you're intoxicated. That's the basic meaning of the word. The more intoxicant that is ingested, just like the longer the chicken was out of the freezer... The more intoxicant that we ingest, the further into the state of intoxication or the further into the state of drunkenness we get. So intoxication or drunkenness is not some late stage after drinking begins. That's how people define it today. Intoxication begins when the drinking begins. So in other words, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, Paul is saying don't be completely drunk. That's obvious. Don't be completely drunk. He's also saying not only that, Don't even begin the process. That's the force of the grammar in the original Greek. But like anything else, it's sometimes easy for people to soften sin. If someone commits adultery, adultery is a bad word, guys. Adultery is a bad word, and it makes people feel bad. So what they say, they they commit adultery. They don't say they committed adultery. They say, oh, they cheated on their wife. Or they had a fling. You know, it makes it sound a little bit better, maybe even kind of cool. When someone lies, they don't say they're a liar. They say, ah, I'm just stretching the truth, or it's just a little fib or a little white lie. See, the, when, we, when we change what we call sin, it makes us feel better about ourselves. Not us, because we don't, we don't do that. But other people, other people do that. They call it a different name and they feel better about it. Well, what do people do with drunkenness? They don't say they're drunk. Somebody drinks a drink. They, they're not drunk. They're tipsy. Or they're buzzed. Or they're they are getting chatty. They, they just get chatty. Or they, uh, they're they just starting to get loosened up instead. It's, it's just a nice way of saying that you're drunk. To a small degree, perhaps. But you're drunk. It's a nice way of saying you're intoxicated. People today, again, define drunkenness as a late stage of intoxication. But the Bible, and Paul correctly identifies drunkenness... Not as that, but as a process. And when someone starts drinking, they begin the process of intoxication, the process of drunkenness. The, the existence, this is, this is important, the existence of drunkenness is not determined by the amount that you drink. The existence of drunkenness is not determined by the amount you drink. The degree of drunkenness is. So how drunk you are is determined by how much you drink. But if you drink, you're drunk. How drunk you are is determined by how much you drink. That's the meaning of the word. Impairment does not begin at some late stage. Any amount of alcohol affects us. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 and 11. Usually when we're looking at Leviticus chapter 10, we're talking about Nadab and Abihu, but we're not this time. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between clean and unclean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord excuse me, ha- had spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Notice God Notice what God said here. God did not say, hey, you priests, don't get drunk. What did God say? Don't drink, period. And what's the reason why? He gives the reason. He says, don't drink, uh, and the answer is because they needed to be able to clearly distinguish between holy and unholy. Well, couldn't they do this if they drank just a little bit? God said, don't drink, period. Period. God obviously knows that drinking any amount of alcohol will begin to affect judgment. How about Proverbs chapter 31? Proverbs chapter 31, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of the afflicted. Kings are commanded to abstain, not from drunkenness. They're commanded to abstain from drinking, period. Why is this? It's the same reason that we read in Leviticus. It affects judgment in any amount. So kings and priests are commanded to abstain completely. And as a quick side note, do you know what Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 says? calls us as Christians? I heard it over here. It must have been Gary. Kings and priests. King. We as Christians are kings and priests. And is there any point in our lives as Christians that we are not before God, serving him? Is there any point in our lives that we should be able to forget the law of God? To any degree? No. No. The point is that drunkenness is a process and not an end. And it's not only that the Bible bears this out, it certainly does. Even modern secular sources bear this out as well. The NHTSA, National Highway uh, Safety Administration, I believe, uh, states that impairment begins, basically this is the lowest amount that they could uh, uh, measure, at 0.005 blood alcohol content. And that didn't mean much to me, but how much does it take to reach 0.005 blood alcohol content? That's a good question. It's not one drink, it's not two drinks. It's as little as one-tenth of one drink One-tenth of one drink, and you will already have measurable levels of alcohol in your system, and it can already affect you. How much is one-tenth of one drink? One tablespoon of wine. Do you know how big a tablespoon is? One tablespoon of wine. Or if you're drinking something stronger, one teaspoon. It's less than one teaspoon of something like an 80-proof drink. Now let that sink in. When someone argues for moderate drinking... They're arguing, typically, for one or two drinks. And that is 10 to 20 times the amount that it's already starting to affect judgment. That's moderate drinking. 10 to 20 times the amount where it's all... Even secular scientific sources are saying, yeah, we can measure it, we can tell, the effects are starting to happen. After consuming one single drink, the effects are noticeable. You have loss in judgment, inhibitions change in mood, and impairment. At two drinks, the effects are similar but more pronounced. The loss of muscle control, uh, judgment, again, short-term memory loss, and even a feeling of high. Biblically and scientifically speaking, drunkenness is not a late stage of drinking. It is a process that begins when you take the first drink. When you drink, you are drunk. The more you drink, the more drunk you become. Society has, today, has redefined drunkenness as this. I have a funny picture. Society, th- this is drunk. Now, if you, if you have had so much that you can't even walk home, this poor guy passed out in the gutter, um, he, he's probably drunk. I imagine he's probably drunk. But you don't have to be passed out in the gutter like this guy to be drunk. The Bible defines drunkenness as an inceptive process. The next argument, sorry, that was a long one. The next one's a very short. The, the next argument comes from the word sober. This is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 8. And there's a number of other verses that uh, have the, the same word. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, again, modern people have redefined what the word sober means. As long as you're not this guy, you're sober. They define it as not completely intoxicated. However, the Bible defines sober as complete abstinence from drinking. Let me give you some sources. Kittle, he's a pretty smart guy. He's a Greek scholar. It is compelling, he says, that the Greek word for sober, self-controlled in in numerous passages, is a word that also means holding no wine. W-E, vine. Nepho, sober, signifies to be free from the influence of intoxicants. John MacArthur, nephalios, temperate a different word here, but it's translated temperate, literally means wineless or unmixed with wine. W.E. Vine again, to abstain from wine. That's how the Bible defines sober. Any amount of social drinking would break these numerous commands to be sober. And that's not only drinking, but taking all sorts of uh, intoxicating things. The last argument we'll look at before examining some objections, this one is the authority argument. In my opinion, the strongest one. But any one of these, from the weakest ones to to this one, should be enough for a mature Christian to want to abstain completely. This is taken from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21 through 28. Jesus is speaking here. You have heard it. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. So in the Old Testament, the Jews read, you shall not murder. Okay, so they say, okay, here's a line. Murder. I can do whatever I want all over here. I can, like, hit people and kick them and throw stuff at them and, you know, spit at them or whatever. As long as I don't get here and murder them, I'm good to go. I can do anything I want up to, but excluding murder... And I'm fine. I can call people names. I can hate my brothers. But what does Jesus say? But I say to you, verse 22, that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then if we skip down to verse 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, here it is, Old Testament. It says, do not commit adultery. Easy enough to understand. We can do whatever we want here though, right? We can look at them and lust after them and, you know, maybe hang out with him, but as long as we don't commit adultery, we're good to go. But what does Jesus say? But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is the principle here? Jesus introduced the principle. It's not only explicitly forbidden things that are wrong, but also that which leads to them. the conclusion is inescapable. If we properly apply this principle to the question at hand, any passage that condemns drunkenness, don't be drunk, also does what? If we apply this principle, any passage that says don't be drunk also says don't drink. Anything that can lead to you being drunk is also condemned if we apply this principle. Paul corroborates this principle as well in Romans chapter thirteen. Let's go to Romans chapter thirteen. It's not Jesus that says it's not only Jesus that says this. Where's Romans? There we go. <clears throat> Romans chapter thirteen and verse fourteen. Actually, let's, let's read verse 13 as well let us walk properly as in the day not in revelry and drunkenness not in lewdness and lust and not in strife and envy but verse 14 put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts everybody already knows that fulfilling the lusts of the flesh is wrong there's lists and lists and lists of all the lusts of the flesh and all sorts of stuff like that doing those things is wrong but what does Paul say here in verse 14 don't even make provision don't even prepare to fulfill the lusts of the flesh do you see that? It's the exact same principle that Jesus introduced in Matthew chapter 5. Now let's quickly look at some objections to some of the more common arguments um, that, that are, are, are brought up. And these were not all of the positive arguments against social drinking, and neither do we have time to look at all of the objections. But if you have any other objections or whatever that you'd like examined or, or you've heard, let us know. We can, we can study those together. But for the sake of time, we've only chosen some of the more uh, common ones the first one what's the first objection that if someone is trying to prove that drinking alcohol is okay what's the very very first thing they say I heard it Jesus Jesus made wine Don't haven't you read the bible Jesus made wine John chapter 2 okay let's go to John chapter 2 John chapter 2 this argument comes from the misunderstanding of what the ancients meant when they said wine. If I say, I went to the store and bought some wine, you would, you would know me to mean I bought a bottle with a cork and it's got some alcoholic beverage made from grapes inside. That's what you would think. Or maybe a box if I'm feeling particularly cheap. Uh, that's what you would think. That's what wine means to us today. But what did wine, the word wine, mean to people in ancient times? It could mean one of three things, or at least one of three things. Back then, it could mean fresh grapes, Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 8. It could also mean grape juice, Isaiah 16 and verse 10. Or it could also mean, of course, an alcoholic beverage, Isaiah 5 and verse 11. Wine, in the Bible, is simply a generic word. It's a generic word that could mean a number of different things. The context is what has to bear out its meaning. So, John chapter 2. If Jesus made alcoholic wine it would have been somewhere in the range of 100 to 180 gallons, give or take, of alcoholic wine. That's like 9 to 10 kegs of beer. So imagine if we were throwing a party, like, like the people we were having yesterday, we were, we were spending time together, and I brought a keg of beer. Boom, big keg. It's like 15 and a half gallons. I brought the keg to the party would you say I was contributing to people's drunkenness? Maybe, maybe not. What if I brought two truckloads of kegs, nine or ten kegs to this party? Yeah, it'd be pretty hard to argue that I was not contributing to people's drunkenness. If Jesus made that much alcoholic wine, he would have broken the spirit, if not the law of both the Old Testament as well as his New Testament law. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 31 we've already looked at. Look at Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15, as well as 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, and ask yourself, could Jesus have made that much alcoholic wine and not broken those passages and others? Jesus' wine had to be merely pure fresh grape juice. It had to be merely pure fresh grape juice. And there's things in the context, as we study it further, that bears this out. So the next argument, they had no way to preserve wine. They had no, or they had no way to preserve grape juice. It, you know, they were just stupid back then. They couldn't figure it out, and it just turned into alcoholic wine. Oftentimes you'll hear the story that the techniques to preserve pure fresh grape juice didn't exist until the 1800s when this dude Thomas Welch came along. You know, Welch's grape juice. So he came along in the 1800s, and he invented the process. Well, little did he know he didn't invent the process because it's been around for thousands of years. The ancients were a lot smarter than we give them credit for today. You know, they didn't have computers, so they mostly just like had sticks and rocks and banging them around and stuff. That's sort of how we uh, caricaturize, if that's a word, them. But they were a lot smarter than we give them credit for. There's a number of ancient writers. I'm going to try to list their names Uh Cato, Columella, Pliny, Vero, Aristotle, Virgil, Josephus, Polybius, Hippocrates, Cellus, many others—they all write of the existence and preservation methods of non-intoxicating wine, pure, sweet grape juice. They had a number of different ways to keep it as pure grape juice or keep it as wine if they wanted. If they didn't have methods to preserve grape juice, it means they didn't have methods to preserve wine. What happens if you don't preserve wine? It turns into vinegar. If they didn't have method to preserve one, they didn't have the method to preserve the other. The truth is, they had methods to preserve both, in whichever form they wanted. The next one, this is a favorite of many. Paul told Timothy to drink wine. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. It reads, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. The first thing to notice, prior to Paul's instruction here, Timothy, as a faithful Christian, what was he doing? What was Timothy doing? He was drinking only water. He was abstaining completely from wine as a faithful Christian. And it took the direct injunction of an apostle of Christ for Timothy to change, even though Timothy was having frequent infirmities. It took the direct injunction of an apostle of Christ. Second, this is far, far from condoning social drinking. One, the amount was to be, how much? A little. And the implication is that it was to be diluted in water, because Paul says, no longer drink only water. He's saying, also mix a little with the water that you've been drinking. The mountain was to be a little, and the implication was that it was heavily diluted. Two, the purpose was very, very specifically medicinal in nature. It was not social, it was not casual, it was not recreational. Three, it cannot even be proven that the wine mentioned was alcoholic. As we already noticed, wine was a generic word. Paul could very well have been referring to regular grape juice, because regular grape juice has vitamins and nutrients and other properties that would help settle Timothy's stomach. <clears throat> doesn't say not to. Next objection. The Bible only ever condemns drunkenness. Oh, the Bible says don't be drunk. So that must mean I can drink a little bit. You know, if your mom says uh, don't run, that means I can walk, right? That's the that's logic that people use. But it's an error when we apply that sort of logic to the Bible. When we read passages that condemn drunkenness and take it as authority to drink in moderation, the logic is faulty. And here's why. A parallel would be when the Bible says, don't be overly wicked. The Bible says that. Homework, you look it up where it is. Don't be overly wicked. And then, oh, that must mean we can be a little bit wicked. All right. No, or how about when the Bible says, an excess of riot is wrong? That means a little bit of riotous living. That's fine. A little bit of riotous living in your life never hurt anybody, right? That's what the Bible says. No, no. Uh, How about when the Bible says uh, it condemns abominable idolatries? What does that mean? If we apply this logic, it means a little bit of idolatry is okay, as long as it's not abominable. We can never take restrictions of excess as authority for doing that in moderation. These things are condemned both in excess and in moderation. A restriction of excess cannot be taken as authority for moderation. Deacons can. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. There we go. First, as we just noticed, what's the answer to this? restriction against excess cannot be taken for authority for moderation this verse no more authorizes moderate drinking than if we were to read ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 and say that that authorizes wrath before sundown you know don't don't be angry after sundown ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 doesn't say that 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, does not approve, like we already noticed, moderate idolatries when it says abominable idolatries are wrong. It doesn't approve moderate riotous living when it says excessive riot. James 1.21 and Ecclesiastes 7, verse 17, they do not approve moderate wickedness. But if we apply this logic, they would. So the conclusion has to be this logic is incorrect. This is simply how ancient writers sometimes spoke. They use the natural language and the natural idioms of their day. When someone says, hey, don't be be too wicked. Yes, don't be too wicked. That's what it means. And it doesn't mean be a little bit wicked. Romans chapter 14, the, the last objection that we'll look at this morning, we have liberty in Christ. Some people would say this is something that we should just not argue about because we have liberty in Christ. Don't you know that that, uh, we have liberty in Christ? We have freedoms. This is an opinion matter. The first point that we have to make is that we never have liberty to sin. We do have a number of liberties in Christ, but we never have the liberty to do sin. What Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14 and and the surrounding context is optional matters. And optional matters are those things that God hasn't legislated on one way or the other. For instance, the Bible doesn't say what time on Sundays the church should meet. As long as we're meeting on the first day of the week, the exact time we choose is our liberty. It's our opinion. We could meet at 5 a.m. Now, we probably have less people, but we could. If we wanted to meet at 5 a.m. on Sunday, we could. Or we could meet at 10 a.m. like we do. Or we could even meet at noon and let everybody sleep in, which may not be a bad idea. But um, it's not up to me. It's not up to me when we meet. But I'll show up whenever. Um, but that's an opinion. We should not argue. Hey, I, you know, 10 a.m. is wrong. 10 a.m. is just wrong, and you shouldn't do it. And you need to change because we have we have liberty in Christ. That is one liberty that we have because God didn't say Sunday 10 a.m. He didn't say that. He just said Sunday. So we have liberty within that command. God didn't say what color carpet we have to have or what color, uh, we don't have any plants, what color plants we have or how many pews to have or anything like that. Those are all optional expedience matters. Those are things that we should not argue about. But with matters that the Bible does speak about, and hopefully we've shown that the Bible does speak about alcohol and drinking and drunkenness. With matters that the Bible does speak about, we do not have liberty to change them. We do not have... Uh, the option of putting our opinion in there. Not only that, though, we have to also be in agreement. Jesus prayed for it in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. Paul commanded that we be united in First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. So on these matters, it is not right to simply think that, well, we can just agree to disagree or that someone can sit here and and just silently disagree within themselves. Oh, I I just think he's just wrong about that. It's just what he thinks, you know, whatever. These are things that can keep people out of heaven. And we should all love each other enough, and that's really what it is. We should love each other enough to discuss these things as long as it takes until we're in agreement, until, until we properly understand what the Bible has to say about it. So what does the Bible say about moderate drinking? There's much more that could be said, and if we had the time, I would go on and on, but hopefully we have shown from the Bible that social drinking is simply incompatible with Christianity. There is nothing in Christianity that could say that social drinking, or taking any other drugs, is right. We should not do it ourselves. We should not tolerate it in others. We should not attempt to excuse it or attempt to soften it. I hope this lesson has been beneficial to you. If, if you have any questions, like, like we said before, if perhaps your objection that, that you have or that you have heard was not addressed, let us know before you leave here today. We would be happy to study with you and to answer that objection. Do you know what you need to do to become a Christian? Do you need the prayers of the church? If this is the case, then please let us know now as we all together stand and sing for encouragement.